0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. This is me, David Nutt, and today my guest is Nathan Busby. He's a journalist and a writer. He's just published a book called Should All Drugs Be Legalized? And he's speaking to me today from Costa Rica, where he's having a well-deserved rest after being at the front line of research on the war on drugs in Mexico. So so welcome, Mehta. Hi, thanks very much for having me on the show, David. So tell us a little bit about how you got into this drug field and the research and writing about drugs. I was yeah, working for The
1: Guardian in the office in, in 2018 when the medical cannabis campaign blew up. And yeah, I was already in touch with with the campaigners due to, you know, one or two previous pieces. And yeah, the editors put me on the story and it all kind of went from there. But yeah, drugs have affected my life massively. There's been serious addiction in my family and I've had my own trials and tribulations and delight (laughs) with drugs and alcohol. But ultimately, yeah. Kind of yeah, difficult experiences, which has led me to my my sober life now. All right, hey, and yeah, the the publisher approached me on on the basis of of my reporting for various publications, and yeah, let's do it. That was about three years ago when when the subject was a lot more taboo than it than it is today. And I moved to Mexico about about a year and a half ago, and haven't really looked back. Whereabouts in Mexico are you, saying? I live on the coast of Oaxaca. I've moved around a little bit, but that's where I've been since the end of November. Lots of opium fields nearby, apparently. But you're away from the worst of the troubles, anyway. At least the worst of the the uh, violence. Yes. yes, that that seems to be pretty much around the border, and then in in Michoacan, which is like a few states up to the west of Oaxaca. But it, it seems that you know trouble kind of finds trouble in it, and you know apart from some kind of. Incidents in in Tulum and around the Yucatan, where tourists have got caught in the crossfire. You know, it's, sadly, it is you know pr- pretty much you know gang on gang up,
0: war on war. Yes, yeah. A lot of people don't realise that Mexico is actually a United States country. It's made of quite a, a number. I can't remember how many eleven or so different states, isn't it? And they they have very really quite different cultures and and different aspirations and different problems. And
1: yes, very much so. I mean, I was living in Chiapas for a while. Last year, which is the southernmost state next to Guatemala, and they have this corridor, you know, running through where there's also people migrating, but also, yeah, human trafficking alongside a lot of the drugs and there's kind of militias that kind of, you know, control those those areas. And sometimes, yeah, it really does spill over. But Oaxaca, yeah, it seems pretty pretty calm in comparison to, to Chiapas. And the structure of Mexico is very interesting and each state has, has its own own character. And yeah, many, many people seem to forget that I think almost half of Mexico was robbed as the spoils of war by the Americans in the mid 19th century, which explains why, you know, so many cities in the South of the
0: US have Spanish names. Yeah. So are you out there for research or is that, was it part of your developing the background for your book or is it a reward for having achieved what is quite a challenging thing to do to actually finish a book? I mean, it's only 20,000 words,
1: although the, the draft was about twice that length. And it did take a while to boil it all down. It's kind of like a poppy product. Yeah. You know, you can read it in probably two sittings. There's about 160 photos. The, the publisher, Thames & Hudson, did an incredible job yeah. of, of putting it together. And yeah, I, I hope that it does kind of break new ground in, in a way as that kind of coffee table fodder. And yeah. I guess it brings the subject a bit a bit closer to the mainstream in a way but yeah it, it would have been nice to do do the kind of thing that Anthony Lowenstein you know did with pills powder and smoke or Johan Hari with chasing the scream but you know they've already kind of done it so i guess for my next tome i have to find some uncharted territory but yeah the book was kind of done when i when i moved out to mexico at the end of march it was more because i'd always wanted to live in mexico since i visited and it's a dream to be able to speak fluent Spanish, work in progress. Now, I've done a few stories out here,
0: and that's actually why I came to Costa Rica for this month to report on a story for Vice. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the, you're one of my most regular correspondents. You know, maybe I should put it the way. I get more emails from you than most journalists. You're always nudging me for comments on various drug topics. So you're obviously writing for uh, newspapers and, and journals as well as books. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I've been lucky enough to yeah be able to report on on a lot of stories concerning drug policy and obviously with your work at awaken the ketamine clinic and imperial and also the papers that you're in, you're involved in in researching and and writing you've really been at the forefront of many of these these developments which are happening at a real startling pace you know in the psychedelic world especially over the last 3 or 4 years and yeah been able to sort of carve a little bit of a niche out and develop develop an expertise. So if there's a story going, you know, I might pitch it or an editor might might ask me to follow it up. But yeah, I've still got plenty of space in my calendar.
0: And I was at a conference in Toronto a couple of months ago and there were some Mexicans there and they were asking me to come over to do some lectures later this year. I can't do that for personal reasons. But I was surprised to discover that... There are people getting arrested in Mexico for bringing ayahuasca into the country. And I was under the impression that basically Mexico allowed anything that grew naturally. But it seems like maybe ayahuasca doesn't grow in Mexico, just the mushrooms. I mean, so I'd be fascinated to know if you've got any insights into, into the psychedelic space in Mexico. So you, is that something that you rub shoulders with? Well, that's partly why I came to Costa Rica to right. report on the aboga
1: tourism, the, the African psychedelic um, from the root of a, a shrub in Gabon, which with its derivative Ibogaine is most well known as a treatment for addiction. Mm. And there's many, many ayahuasca retreats and ceremonies that are held here. And although also, you know, there are also in Mexico ayahuasca ceremonies, it, it's telling that most people come to Costa Rica to do it because they, because yeah, they they feel more comfortable in Mexico I know one one retreat, a very well known retreat, was scoping out doing it on the West Coast, but the cartel mm-hmm. started started trading in psilocybin. So they didn't they didn't <laughs> feel yeah, they didn't feel comfortable doing it there. So then now they're doing it in Jamaica, which is which is quite interestingly also carving itself out as, as a kind of psilocybin yes. magic mushroom
0: retreat hub. But yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, Jamaica's actually becoming quite progressive. It's obviously got a a strong strong tradition of cannabis, and, and it's making high-quality cannabis for medical use now, but I heard that it legalized the mushrooms a year or so ago, and uh, as you say, casting itself as a, a good destination for sort of both recreational and, and medical uses of mushrooms now. Yeah. Whereas people feel Mexico dangerous, are they still? Costa Rica feels safer, does it? I mean, Costa Rica doesn't have a
1: military, but there was a brief civil war in the 40s, and you know, I, th- I think there was just a collective realization of the folly of war. So, yeah, I mean, it's such a peaceful country. This the land is clearly very blessed. But yeah, I don't, I don't think. You know, I, I, mushrooms might grow here, but yeah, it doesn't have the same indigenous history of, of psychedelic use like, like you have in Mexico, in in Oaxaca, in Huautla. You know, the the town of Maria Sabina, which I also also visited recently, and you know. There's a long history of healers in the area hold, holding holding mushroom ceremonies, and then further north, in San Luis de Potosí and Chihuahua in the desert where peyote grows, the Huaraca people have for thousands
0: of years, yeah, worked with this medicine. It's very central to the to their origin story. And do you want to just share a little bit? Not everyone who listens to this podcast will be as familiar with uh, Maria as you are. Too. You want to share about the discovery of mushrooms by the Western world? Absolutely. I, I have a story forthcoming on this,
1: and I interviewed her, her grandson and her great-great-nephew ah. last month at the museum at her home, ah. which was very, very fascinating. The brief story is that in the 50s, an amateur mycologist and Wall Street banker, he was a vice president at JP Morgan, Gordon Wasson, had heard about a mythical substance, tío nacatal, and then had also read some intriguing passages from Spanish chroniclers from the 16th and 17th century, where, the, where they spoke of mushroom ceremonies. So after a couple of visits to Oaxaca and around Huautla de Jiménez, he was eventually invited to a ceremony held by Maria Sabino, in which magic mushrooms grown in the area, there's about five varieties, including the most popular, I think it's called Jambe, and he broadcast his findings to the world in an article in 57 in, in Life magazine in which the word magic mushrooms was coined. And the West and the rest of the world kind of collectively woke up to the reality of magic mushrooms growing all around us, apart from, you know, in, in real difficult climates, but even where it isn't, you know, more snowy, it's it's kind of different varieties like Amanita muscaria that, that grow. It's an interesting question. You know, it was the knowledge of magic mushrooms lost, you know, during the Inquisition, you know, yeah. Roman attacks on Druids? Because even even in Mexico, you know, they, they kept it to themselves, you know. <laughs> Maria Sabina and, and her, her community, they weren't shouting it from the rooftops, just in the same way that in other parts of the world, such as the Taoists, you know, did keep their kind of esoteric practices secret. And... Even when they did write them down, I think at at the turn of the the second century, they they wrote it in very coded language, so the uninitiated couldn't easily benefit from the
0: practices. You can understand why the Mexicans wouldn't want to make it public because they were were being killed off by the Spanish. Exactly. In those uh, early days of the invasion, and then you know, know, their culture was trying to be exterminated. And uh, I think there was a systematic attempt by the Spanish to eliminate all references to to other deities and to to the use of drugs to experience it. Exactly. I I think the missionaries were, you know, some with good
1: intentions, I'm sure, but others, you know, were fundamentally trying to pull the people of Mexico away from other sources of of spiritual power. Mm. So, yes, it's it's no surprise that in the 50s, you know, the people that had, you know, kept kept the tradition and kept the knowledge going, you know, were difficult to find. But as I say, Wasson's findings you know, also backfired in a way, and there was an
0: explosion of tourism to the area. Has it recovered from that? I mean, obviously, if they've got a museum, I guess they have. I guess they're celebrating the fact that they did lead, lead the West on a new path, but it was very turbulent for, for quite a few decades, wasn't it, when when the West came in and kind of exploited the, their knowledge of the Muslim? Exactly, I, th- I think there was kind of rapid
1: cultural changes, and, you know, some people didn't behave consciously, Stories of you know people swigging mezcal, smoking weed in the streets, and tripping out on on mushrooms, and you know, for a very rural, you know, humble community, you know, I think that definitely caused ructions. and And Maria Sabina suffered, you know, she was jailed for a time. her Her house was set on fire. She was victimized by by parts of the community that that were jealous or otherwise towards her. And eventually, the military had to step in and prevent visitors to the town foreign visitors for about a decade but now now yeah the town has has you know seems to be pretty stable apparently it receives about 300 400 mostly mexican tourists per week there's a couple dozen healers and yeah it has like an interesting energy that the town for sure like you're kind of like in many places in mexico you're you're in the sort of wild west and Yeah, one one has to find one's way a little bit. And I'm sure there's some people out there, you know, to exploit people is what I've heard from the guide. You know, we found through friends, but everyone was very lovely to us and very, very welcoming, very, very hospitable. And yeah, we enjoyed, you know, buying, buying flowers, which we gave as gifts to some of the people and undergoing some of the local tours and eating the local food, the Habali wild boar. Was, was an interesting delicacy. So, yeah, we had a wonderful time, and, and there were many other tourists there at the time with us.
0: Yeah, so that's one area where the, what might sort of call, of experiential, mind experiential tourism seems now to got, be coming got into equilibrium. You know, I suppose a bit like ayahuasca is coming into equilibrium in places and parts of Brazil and Peru. I guess the peyote is still a bit of a problem because I don't think there's so much of it. And it's, so, you know, how is Mexico viewing peyote?
1: Yes, I recently reported on this for Open Democracy. I think of all the natural psychedelics, peyote faces the most acute conservation issues. I mean, many people in Mexico don't even don't even know what it is. Never mind, have really worked with it. Like you know, in mo- in many ways, it is still the kind of preserve of the seekers, many of whom are, are foreign. But Wirikuta, which is is near to the old mining town of Real de Catorce, is is a kind of is the kind of mecca for the Wawarika people and, yeah, as I say, very close to their origin story is there's the hill that is believed to have given birth to the sun just above the town and and there's there's regular pilgrimages to the town and it, I think it sees, yeah, thousands, tens of thousands of visitors. There's serious issues o- over poaching of peyote and there isn't really any cultivation plans. It's very kind of laissez-faire. Yeah, increasingly the, the the seeds are being replanted from ceremonies, but yeah, it's, it, it's difficult because the Wawaraka actually live in the Sierra Madre, which is you know above above the desert, so they they don't live on the land, you know of which they are in some senses custodians. And you know, recent incursions by agribusiness, you know, massive greenhouses, yeah, to grow tomatoes and keep chickens have been erected on top of the land which grows peyote, which has been excavated, you know, real large swathes of land. So that's yeah. just compounding some of the issues after, after kind of ranchers have yeah, bought the land for grazing their cattle. But there's, there, there's interesting projects underway and it also grows in Texas and Arizona, I believe, north of the border. And I recently heard that, that um, a chap in Canada had, had grown 13,000 peyote buttons over the course of about thirty years, in his parents' greenhouses, and he just sent the first four thousand to the Comanche tribe, and it, it took about three years to get the authorization from the DEA. But yeah, now now they're figuring out how to get the next nine thousand down there, and you know, it, it might even be you know a bit of a drop in the ocean considering how much is eaten at the moment. But if you, if you think if the seeds are properly replanted, and that you know there's a couple dozen seeds in each each button then, yeah, I think it's a very, very promising project.
0: So that's cultural repatriation as opposed to appropriation. <laughs> Paying back the debt, yes.
1: Exactly. I, yeah, no, I think the chap had, you know, had some real, real positively life-changing experiences with, with the medicine and, and wanted to find a way to
0: give back. And it seems that he, ha- he, has, he has certainly done that. But in the sort of general popular press and media in Mexico, is, is there any recognition of this or is it all about the... The cocaine and the opium battles across the border. There was a fabulous piece in the student press, actually, a real, a real
1: excellent long read. Unfortunately, I can't remember the publication, but perhaps I can link it whenever the podcast gets published. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But as far as I understand from my my light reading of of Mexican media, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's focused on the high politics, not not so dissimilar to the UK media, and yeah, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, they're so interested in in the trials and tribulations of the conservation of a obscure cactus, which is used by you know a tribe of several tens of thousands of people. But I think across the world, the consciousness about peyote is growing. There's a recent Patty Smith album which pays homage to it. The president of the World Boxing Council was recently waxing lyrical about peyote and obviously. Hunter S. Thompson and Aldous Huxley brought mescaline into our collective consciousness originally. So, yeah, it's something, you know, largely
0: unique to Mexico and… But I'm, I'm trying to get at it. There's not a sense in which they celebrate being, you know, the, the forebears. Uh, I'm just interested to know, you know, whether it's, it's not something that is being celebrated or talked about particularly, it's, but it's not being oppressed. The conversation at the moment is about cannabis. That
1: is really making news because right. the Supreme Court have made like a series of judgments which have steadily kind of dismantled the prohibition regime, at least in case law. And I've been covering this in some detail for Leafly, the, the cannabis website. And that's basically forced the hand of, of lawmakers to legislate. And a bill has been on the table for the last year and a half, maybe longer. And there's kind of ping pong between the two houses and and now it really does seem just like a kind of purposeful, delaying. AMLO, the president, has kind of flip-flopped on it. He recently suggested a referendum and then said later, more broadly, that you know there was no consensus on the legalization of, of drugs. But Oaxaca, the state, the state where I live, the city council in April, just declared cannabis kind of legal, kind of decriminalized and basically said that people had carte blanche to smoke it even on the streets, so long as, you know, they weren't harassing any anybody and, you know, smoking in the face of children, which is obviously reasonable demand. So yeah, there's an industry kind of growing apace, a gray industry. Dispensaries are opening up in some of the main cities, kind of boutique, boutique kind of outlets. And, you know, cannabis is very easily, easily found. Many people smoke it openly and privately although in some places yeah that, that the influence of the cartel is is quite profound and you know i've heard stories about people getting a tap on the shoulder quite aggressively you know because a cartel member has has recognized that they're not smoking their weed they're smoking something sh- you know stronger and you know they've had to i don't know give them some money or say sorry or even hand over their weed as, as a consequence so yeah as many things in mexico it's kind of surreal it's a hodgepodge and yeah the media i think are large largely keep that's where any kind of drug focus is centered along with the kind of trial of some former
0: officials in the Calderon government who have been up to no good so you know, if obviously when we look to Mexico, we think about you know the, the devastation and the, the hundreds of thousands of deaths in the hands of the cartels is that but there's much less of that in the western media at present is that just because we're been deflected to ukraine and into climate crises or is there less of it you know, on the ground all, are there less deaths is it settling down
1: amlo's hugs not guns policy broadly led state forces to be kind of policing the borders between cartels mm-hmm. but the general the general murder rate hasn't decreased in fact it's increased and uh, notably journalists, there's been a real upshot in journalists getting yeah. killed, mo- mostly by cartel members this year, I've, I think is up to, up, you know, horrific and sadly to about 14 Mexican journalists killed this year, we, which is just horrific. And I think AMLO has some serious questions, you know, to answer, which he, he has deflected from, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, there's been some turf wars in the in Yucatan and Michoacan, mm. where there's the war between the, the El Chapo cartel and, and the new generation Jalisco cartel, among others. But I think broadly speaking, yeah, the levels haven't gone back to you know, the late noughties after Calderon no. declared you know, this militarized yeah. war on drugs. Recently, there's been continued fallout from the deaths of the fort- and disappearance of the 43 students a few years back because an official report Found that the military had been tracking them, and that were largely aware of, you know, how their bus they had been on was commandeered, and and that they were taken and, and killed, and didn't do anything. So that that's taken a bit of attention in, in the Mexican
0: media recently. Yeah, I guess you are at the forefront there. So has your perspective on drug legalization changed at all since you've been living at the uh, the furnace where it's all happening? I mean. The thing you have to understand living in Mexico is the extent
1: of the state's power, much as living in other, other places where the government does have a relatively total grasp on power, on the, the mechanisms of, of the state, the army, the police. In Mexico, depending on where you are, you know that equation is a lot more muddled. You know, police act in concert in places. You know, with local local power actors, local families who hold sway. There's a federal army. There's state armies. There's a the national guard. All connected to you know different kind of yeah power dynamics and and sources. So it's like obviously it seems that you know legalizing drugs in Mexico would you know maybe even maybe even be some sort of panacea in in some ways, especially if and I'm not sure if this is palatable to many people, but, you know, if, you know, cartel figures were allowed were allowed to participate in the legal economy. But there's obviously the potential for, you know, them just saying no, and even going to war with state forces and, you know, causing certain state forces to desert, you know, once they have to choose between their, their loyalties. So, yeah, it's a really difficult question, and it's one
0: that I'm sure AMLO, the president, you know, is grappling with. It is also, I'm... Speaking with uh, Steve Rolls and Transform, and he's at, there's quite a lot of discussion going on about having a some kind of regulated cocaine market in in Mexico as well. I mean, is that is that in, or is that just uh, outsiders looking in? Or is, is there much discussion about that? Where you, are? as I say, I think I think the conversation's mostly centered on on
1: cannabis at the moment. There's whispers. There's fring, there's fringe voices, but I think it's mostly in Colombia where where there's that discussion because there was a bill that passed the first reading, I think, in the Senate with the support of a couple dozen senators, I understand. It didn't make the second reading, but yeah, I, I mean, the former president Santos had, you know, spoken about that and had, had kind of pressurized, you know, the UN alongside the Mexican and Guatemalan governments at, at the time, I think in 2009, which led to the Yungas conference. So yeah. I think that now, especially with the, the election of the new left-wing president in Colombia, that yeah, it's an interesting moment. I think anyone who looks at the situation in Colombia as a mostly producer country will see the benefits of creating creating a legal market. And yeah, they'll have to secure some sort of UN approval to be able to kind of do those exports. Also, there's cocaine production in, in Bolivia is, is rising and you know, if they also had access to, to a global market for coca, I think it would have you know, supreme benefits f- for their economy and would you know, go some way to undoing some of the pain inflicted by the
0: US-led war on drugs in those countries. Well, that gets us back to your book then. So tell us a bit more about your book and what is the answer? Should all drugs be legalized? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, it's a very complex question. The book kind of goes into the history of drug use and acknowledges that there's a human inherent desire to you know alter alter our consciousness that, that goes back a long way and yeah is typified daily by our drinking of coffee of you know alcohol which is made from different kinds of wheat mainly different hops rye barley and that yeah this modern modern scenario uh, of powders is a kind of relatively newfound situation, and for better or worse, policymakers you know re- responded to it with prohibition. but now now we're in this moment where society is a lot more educated, you know in no part thanks to you and your colleagues about you know the the benefits and and the dangers of these these drugs and these plants, and many many people. Misusing drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine, like like never before. But also, people are you know discovering the healing potential of, you know, some of these psychedelics and MDMA, like like never before. So yeah, when we talk about you know should all drugs be legalised, it, it, it's such a broad thing. But you know, ultimately, I, I think if we look at you know the history of humanity, bans on you know any sort of desirable. Activity or consumable have never really seemed to work un- unless they've been underpinned by a kind of authoritarian religious structure. And, you know, indeed, you know, when those structures are in place, may- maybe it is suppressing something for later down the line. But as who you've mentioned and his colleagues at Transform and others have, have outlined, there's various, you know, models to look at legalizing drugs. Last week, an MDMA store in in Holland opened a kind of mock shop with no MDMA, but to kind of kickstart the conversation, and they do have a real shop. It l- it looks the real deal from the photos. You know, it's whether, do, you know, for something like MDMA, do we have a retail market? Do we have, you know, like, like the kind of these smart shops, you know, in, in Holland where there's a bit of harm reduction advice, but, you know, you don't have to sign up to like a register or anything or you know, do we have something where you have to sign up to a register, do like a speeding awareness course, you know, to go to a kind of pharmacy-based place, or or is it going to be even even stricter than that? And, you know, depending depending on which model one follows, you know, you leave X amount of space open for a black market. So there's that consideration. And, you know, if other drugs are made more available, demand for other potentially more dangerous drugs is likely to go down,
0: which is the reality of, you know dealers who are upselling but do you think there could be one a one size fits all model for all drugs in all countries or do you think we're going to have to look at local needs and feasibilities and practicalities i mean
1: yes i think with everything it's it's advisable to yeah allow local actors to figure out what best situation to pursue in keeping with their with their cultures and and traditions but certainly i i think You know, for the most addictive drugs, there's going to have to be more barriers to access than, you know, your kind of magic mushrooms and and your cannabis and the other lower harm substances. But I hope, you know, as this conversation moves further along, as more countries legalize cannabis, with Germany looking like it would be the next one, we'll learn the lessons of this kind of laissez-faire reg- regulation in certain US states, which had just led to a corporate takeover. You know, there's no cannabis social clubs, there's no kind of Amsterdam style cafes where people can gather. There's been, you know, industry interference, you know, at least in Florida where where black farmers have been largely excluded from the market because, you know, clauses, you know, were introduced by the back door to prioritize farmers who have been going for like 30 odd years and had had more than X amount of hectares. And at the same time that, you know, policymakers grapple with these big questions, I, I think we have serious questions for the alcohol industry. The models obviously differ around the world. In the UK, you know, you can buy vodka on every street corner. Whereas in, in Quebec, Canada, you know, for spirits, it's kind of state stores that are only open between certain times. And, you know, in some ways that does seem like a more responsible system and you know perhaps we could even even go further to ensure that people that are obviously suffering under the impact of of drinking alcohol are you know signposted to support you know when each time they're going to the checkout
0: i see yes they get given a a card for the local a.a do they
1: (laughs) well i mean that that's what you know the most responsible model you know for these particularly addictive drugs you know should be although yeah i'm not sure about kind of abstinence base recovery for everyone, which is the AA model, although the founder notably spoke highly of the effect of LSD on, on alcoholism. But yeah, I, th- I think that, you know, if we can grasp this moment to further a more caring and, and compassionate society that, that doesn't stigmatize people that are suffering under the weight of often trauma-led physical dependencies on drugs, you know, including alcohol, and we can put an arm around, arm around, you know, people rather than, you know, sending them to jail, which is, fortunately, you know, increasingly happening in terms of incarceration rates for drugs in in the
0: West. But obviously, we can go much further. I'm not sure it's happening much in Britain, but uh, it's, I don't know. We've doubled our prison population in the last thirty years, almost entirely for people who've got drug problems. So, uh, I'm interested. So, what? How has your your opinion of the UK changed now you've spent considerable time in other countries? I mean, now you can look back to it rather than be part of it. As well, has your attitude changed? You've seen it differently. Yeah,
1: it's, it's complicated. The jail data, but to my viewing of it, you know, for people with simple possession and use offences, there's definitely been a downward tra- trajectory in, in terms of the incarceration rate, but. Yeah, there's obviously a long way to go and it's it's a complicated picture and the data doesn't always reflect the reality. But yeah, li- living outside of the UK now for pushing a year and a half, yeah, I guess, yeah, you, you become grateful for the many, the many gifts, the cultural delights, the diversity, but yes, yeah, so you also get, you know, further insight into just the level of how anachronistic, you know, the UK is. You know, di- different countries are obviously governed by a kind of haphazard coalition of, you know, sometimes historically-led power factions or or just total anomalies. But I think it's much the same in the UK. And we've never, you know, there was obviously the Civil War in the 17th century, but I don't think there's ever been that, like, real, real break. And, yeah, I see that my... Colleagues and good friends at The Guardian have been covering some of the Queen's misdeeds again in, in recent weeks and how laws are used to conserve her economic and, and political power. We see the ridiculous events in Westminster and the new leadership race for the Conservative Party. But as I say, I think I think all countries to some degree have, have their own issues but i think i think there's yeah there's a big problem in the uk with with the landed class and the class system and, and the ingrained privilege and yeah related issues but you know i'm from a working class family and even though i've got a massive bill you know i'm paying back my tuition fees but i got given a few grants you know i also got a, gr- a loan for my masters and obviously i i'm a good example of yeah like social climbing you know working so yeah, I'm grateful, but yeah, living outside and and looking back in, yeah, the, the, the first thing I thought, apart from wanting to be at Glastonbury this year, was, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, what a bunch of like landed codgers that are kind of running the country and, you know, running it into the ground at the expense of, you know, most working
0: people. Now we know why you're why the Guardian was uh, so pleased to take you on. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> you probably had those views from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean like I'm not really seeking to be like a,
1: a commentator on on society or or indeed drugs, as I say, like you know the publisher kind of approached me to do to do the book, and it's it seemed like a yeah a good opportunity, and obviously everyone wants to yeah write a book you know when when they're a journalist but yeah you know Britain is also a place where many people from diverse backgrounds have been able to give their families you know a much much better life but yeah, there, there's you know clearly some kind of fundamental issues which the RMT union have, have notably been been bringing to the headlines
0: recently. So you still do keep quite close, obviously. Uh, you're reading the Guardian online, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm tuning in when Mick Lynch
1: is on the soapbox, and yeah, I think it's great that more working class, you know, people have been brought onto the telly due to this rail strike, and. You know, I think his and others' appearances have, have really demonstrated, yeah, the, A, the lack of working-class voices on the telly, which I think has been a trend, you know, since the Fatchy years. And, yeah. you know, how much sense, you know, at normal working people that are there on, on the ground, shoulder to shoulder with, with the people that are face, facing the brunt of these kind of, you know, macro issues, the kind of S, SW1 class you know, kind of pontificating around, although there are some
0: excellent pundits, many of whom write for The Guardian. So let me just finish by, so you, what's your next book? Do you have a do you have a plan? Are you going to write another expose or are you going to, what are you next going to, you have another ambition? Are you going to write a novel or what? I mean, that's why I
1: came onto the podcast, David, to kind of pitch around, you know, any, any interested publishers or agents that are tuning in, look, looking for the new talent. Go on
0: then, pitch out.
1: Well, I mean, then, Everyone will know the idea, but I mean, on on a very broad level, I think, you know, in step with, yeah, the rising consciousness and mainstreaming of of psychedelics and, yeah, the increasing popularity of practices like meditation and and yoga, I think there's a kind of rising consciousness in in some ways. I read recently that the Comanches prophesied this in the Eagle and the Mm Connolly prophecy. And... I think that yeah, this this moment is really really exciting. I think a lot of people figuring out how to live, you know, healthier lives that are more more in tune with the natural world, and yeah, it's, it doesn't come a minute too late with these temperatures we're seeing, you know, in in the UK today. I, I see you wearing a polo shirt, so I think yeah, I think something that that delves into that and, and finds some interesting stories that that illustrate the journey that many people and, and societies have been on and, you know, the barriers that, that are faced to really kind of realize this paradise that, that, you know, we could
0: all be living in. Well, Matai, sorry, Mather, <laughs> Mather, Mather, I've got it right at last, Mather. Third time lucky. I've sent you enough emails, but we haven't, we haven't spoken enough. We were on the Owen Jones show last year. but I'm going to master it now. Mather Busby. I hope there are, <laughs> there are some publishers listening to this who will come to you and give you that advance you need, so that you can really get into the the depth of this relationship of humans, plants, in the future. So, good luck to you there. Thank you so much for coming on the uh, the program. Obviously, when you go back to Mexico, you know whatever you do, stay safe. Thank you very much.
1: Yes, thanks for that, David. Thanks for the support. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thank you. Cheers.